0: Thanks. Uh, thanks for being here. I know uh, maybe a little bit, a little bit warmer than uh, than usual, but this is not a bad thing. I think when things don't seem to go the way that we want them to go, the question that we ask is not the question uh, "Why? Why is this happening to me?" The question we ask is "What? Like, what is God wanting to show us through this? What is God trying to teach us through this? What is God trying to tell us through this?" I think one of the things that the Lord Um, is doing in my heart is teaching me a couple things. One, uh, as we prepare to send out uh, those 20 people who are going to the Dominican Republic, uh, this will be the condition in which many of them worship. And so it helps us to understand and identify a little bit more with the needs that they have when they're tempted to want to give up or when they're tempted to want to complain. Because we understand, because we've been here, we can encourage and pray a little bit more intimately with them. It's also a reminder that uh, in a lot of places throughout the world, this is how our brothers and sisters worship, in very adverse conditions. Some of them, it's not simply heat, it's suffocation, it's uh, a six foot by six foot cell. Uh, for some people, it's, it's the, the weight of persecution and the weight of rods against their back, and that's the condition in which they worship. We don't have to worship in that way here in America, but one of the ways in which we can Understand and identify is by putting ourselves in a condition in a situation that takes us out of our comfort in order that we might be able to identify with those who are in places and times of need. We can't fully say that I'll die for my faith if we can't endure an hour in the heat, right? And so I think these are all ways of God showing us and teaching us that to be able to worship God when conditions are not ideal is a great thing for us to learn in our discipleship journey. And so if Instead of asking, why, why, what's going on? If we can ask, what is God trying to do? How is he trying to make me more like Christ? I think we'll be able to worship a little bit more fully and freely together here. Amen? Yeah. (laughs) We're talking about faith. We're talking about faith. Fifth week. My family and I, we've been, uh, we're we're not, we can't really sit around and watch movies uh, because uh, I'll fall asleep and, and, and because we just don't have a lot of time to sit there and, and, and a block of time. And so what we've been doing, uh, some of you may get extremely frustrated by this and say, how could you do this? But uh, over the past few weeks, we've been watching a movie called Narnia uh, in bits and pieces, like ten, <laughs> 10 minutes at a time. We've been watching Narnia and we've gotten to, a, a, well, I don't want to ruin the, the, the movie, but we've gotten to a point, it, it's based off of C.S. Lewis' a great series of novels. This one is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, where four children have been sent off because of the war. Uh, World War breaks out, and so uh, the kids go off, and they're in this huge mansion, and one of the children discovers that if you go into a wardrobe, which is kind of like a a fancy closet that you open up and you walk into, you, you got clothes hanging in there. If you walk into there, you can get to the magical, mystical land of Narnia. And so we've just discovered that Uh, The children can go to Narnia, and there's snow everywhere. And so we're watching this movie, and it's really cool, and and the kids are being fascinated by it. As we finished watching one day, I I got up to uh, go into my closet, just to, I I don't know what I was doing there. But Elijah said to me, Daddy, where are you going? Um, Olivia has her shadow. Her name is Elise. That's our youngest daughter. I have my shadow. His name is Elijah. He's our middle one. And so he wants to follow me where I go. I said, Elijah, I'm going to my closet. You want to come? He's like, okay. And so we get into the closet and I have this brilliant idea. I said, Elijah, daddy's going to go to Narnia right now. Do you want to go? And he's like, are you going to go too, daddy? I said, daddy will go after you go. Do you want to go? He said, yeah, I want to go. So we have this little hamper, this little hamper where we put our dirty lawn. I don't know why I put them in there, but... (laughs) We've got a hamper where all of our dirty laundry goes. It's kind of a cylinder like a little tower. I said, Elijah, if you go in here, then you're going to end up in Narnia. Once you put your head under, then you're going to go to Narnia. Do you want to go? He said, Daddy, are you going to go? I said, Daddy promises that if you end up in Narnia, Daddy's going to follow you. He said, I want to go then. I said, Elijah, listen to what this means. This means that you're not going to be able to play with your Legos anymore. You can't play with your Ninjago anymore. You can't play with your baseball stuff anymore. Do you still want to go? He said, Daddy, are you going to go? I said, Elijah, if you go, then I'm going to go. Where you go, I will also be. (laughs) I said, I'll go, Elijah, if you go. And so he said, okay, as long as Daddy goes, I'll do anything. So he climbed in the hamper, and then he sat there and he waited, and he waited, and he waited, and nothing happened. In fact, uh, something did happen. I turned out the lights to make it seem all dramatic. So he's like, oh my gosh, I'm in this new place. But he didn't. He got a little bit scared and he toppled the thing over and then he started laughing and we started laughing and oh all had a great big laugh. And he came out of that place having never gone to Narnia, but I came out of that place saying thank you, Elijah, because it warms my heart to know that Elijah's willing to go somewhere even though he has no idea where it's going to end up simply because he knows that his daddy's going to go there and his dad is going to be there with him. He's willing to leave everything behind in order to go to a foreign place because his dad said, trust me, you can go. Let me ask you a question. Who, if they told you, go to this place where you do not know where it's going, for whom would you actually go, not knowing where that place would lead? Would you go if your dad told you to go, hey, just follow me, we're going to go somewhere. Would you go? Leave everything behind. Would you go? If God told you, I want you to go to this place, you don't know where it's going to be, the only thing I can promise you is that I'm going to go with you, would that be enough for you to follow God into what Chapman calls a glorious unknown? Would that be enough if God said, for the sake of the call, would you go, knowing nothing else but the fact that God was going to go with you, would that be enough to get us to go? It's a question that confronted a man that we call the father of the faith, Father Abraham. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read verses 8 through 12 and we're going to look at the true story of Abraham and his wife Sarah. Out of his faith came the faith that we believe, the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, the Islamic faith, even all of them come from uh, this man that we call Father Abraham. He had many sons and the many sons had Father Abraham. We're going to look at that. A little bit today and then a little bit uh, a couple weeks out. This is God's word. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 8 through 12. This is God's word. It says, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac Isaac. And Jacob, his son and grandson, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. This is God's word. As we look at faith, we've seen a few things. We've looked at some of the heroes of the faith from the Jewish hall of faith. We've looked at the life of Abel and what it means to offer a worship by faith. We've looked at Enoch and what it means to walk by faith. And we looked last week at Noah and what it means to have this crazy kind of faith. And today we're going to look at the faith of the man that we consider to be the father of our faith, uh, Abraham and his wife, Sarah. In fact, I think the last section, verses 11 and 12, uh, are about Sarah, and we'll talk about that as we get into the third thought here. But what do we see about the father of our faith? I think he would have something very instructive to teach us about the nature of faith. Three things that we're going to talk about. The first thing is this. Faith is willing to leave all and follow God. Faith is willing to leave everything and follow God if it called us to go. Last week, Pastor Daniel and I were in Seattle for a pastor's conference. Um, a really, really good, good, good time. An enriching time of learning, teaching, uh, being, receiving teaching, uh, fellowshipping with others. Uh, most of the uh, morning and, and afternoons were filled with sessions and then we left the evenings free for participants to just go and hang out. This one particular evening, uh, one of these pastors in attendance decided he wanted to do something very special, do something very memorable, and so he decided that he's going to take his girlfriend of five months up to the downtown Seattle area to the Space Needle, which is the iconic monument in Seattle, and there he was going to take her out to dinner and ask her to marry him. This is exciting stuff, and so uh, blah, 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 long story short, the next day, I said, hey. Uh, what happened? Tell me what went down. How did it all go? Been, uh, I've been walking with this brother for some time, and he'd asked me on many occasions, Pastor D.L., can you hook me up with a girlfriend? Can you, do you know anyone who wants to marry a pastor? Do you know anyone who's be, willing to, to marry somebody like me? 38 years old, he never had a girlfriend before. Not that he hadn't tried. He tried on many occasions, but it just, it, it just didn't work out. And so he said, can you help me? And so finally he called me up uh, uh, some time ago and he said, I found someone. I found someone who would actually want to date me and maybe she wants to marry me. And then he told me that he's going to go and he's going to introduce her to the parents in Seattle during this weekend and that he's going to try to ask her to marry him. And so I was really excited about this and so he told me afterwards how it went. He said they went up to uh, the Space Needle to eat dinner. As they're eating dinner she had to go to the bathroom before they started eating. So she went to the restroom and he pulled out um, the ring and he put it on the table in front of them. Okay. Uh, remember, 38 years old, he's never had a girlfriend before. He's like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to talk to girls. I don't know how to relate to her. I don't know any of this stuff. And so if you can just kind of imagine, that's his mindset. So he puts the ring on the table and she comes back and she doesn't see it. He says, let's pray for the dinner. And as she puts her head down to pray, she sees the ring She's like, oh my goodness, like this is the most, I would imagine that if you're a girl, this is like the greatest moment, the, the biggest surprise of her life. And instead of being able to celebrate, he's like, let's pray. Right? So she closed her eyes to pray. And I'm probably, you know, some of you may be sitting in a worship service hoping that prayer, why is he praying for so long? I would imagine that this is what this sister is thinking as he's praying. Probably the most excited she's ever been praying for something ever in her life. So he's praying for the, for the meal, and while he's praying, he's getting around, he grabs the ring off the table, and he gets down on his knee, he says, amen, and she's like, oh, you're not there anymore, you're right here, and so he pops up right here, and he's, this is what he said, he said, oh, this was really cool, I got down on one knee, but instead of just getting on one knee, I wanted to make it unique, so I got down on both knees. <laughs> I was like, bro, why did you do that? He's like, because no one else has done that. I was like, yeah, and probably no one else will ever do it again in the history of marriage for both. He got down on both. To me, to me, what that reminds me of, if you get down on both knees, one, you're begging them to marry you, which if this is your first girlfriend in 38 years, I can imagine that that could be the case. The other thing I think is you get down on both knees, you're offering worship to that person, which again, if first girlfriend in 38 years, I could see that being the case also. So he says, will you marry me? And what do you think she said? Five months. He's on both knees. What do you think he said? She said, <laughs> I, I don't think I would be telling this story if she said no. But she said, yes, I'll marry you. He was really excited about it. He told her that he loved her. This is another thing. He, so he said, and I told her I love her. And I told her that before, but she never told me I love you back. I said, why not? She said, I just, she, she just always said, I can't say that to you. I don't know, it's been five months, right? you telling me I love you, I can't say it back to you. I'm wondering, man, she's probably like creeped out by you. But he said, after I proposed to her, for the first time she said, I love you. She said, I can trust you because we're going to do life together. I think about this because this scene happens a lot whenever, not whenever, but oftentimes when people want to get married. Who do you think is more nervous in that moment? The guy who's just dropped a lot of money on a ring, hoping that she'll say yes, or the girl who's receiving this ring, thinking about, I'm going to be with this guy for the rest of my life. I think this whole arrangement here is a picture, yeah, of love and trust, but I think in a deeper sense, to me, this reminds me a lot of what it is to take a step of faith. In essence, what he's saying is, after 38 years of life, I'm forsaking all others to say, I'm hitching my wagon with you. It's you and you only. No one else for me. And the same thing she's saying, she's saying the exact same thing. I don't know what her dating history has been like, but she's saying, there's no one else for me. If you tell me that we're going to go, that I'm going to leave everything behind and I'm going to follow you. You can see why this is a very scary thing, this whole idea of marriage and proposals. Because you're saying, I'm willing to forsake everything that I've known up until this point in time other lovers, other friends, other boyfriends, other girlfriends, other attempts, other people in order to say, I'm going to follow you wherever you call me to go. And wherever you go, I'm going to go with you. This is what God told Abraham to do. In fact, Abraham in the time, it says, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place, he would later receive his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. At the time, Genesis 11, Genesis 12, all the way through 18, tells us the true story of Abraham. And In fact, Abraham's story is long in Genesis, and there's more space taken up in Hebrews 11 on Abraham than on any other hero in the faith. Abraham at the time was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldees. It's an ancient city archaeologists have dug and found that about a quarter of a million people lived there. This was a big, booming city in the ancient world. It was rich. It was affluent. It was famous for three things. It was famous for his business and commerce. It was famous for his science, particularly math and astronomy. And it was famous for being a philosophical hub, a place of debate. This was one of the baller cities of the ancient world. And Abraham was living there. He had a wife. He had everything that people needed. He was rich. He had possessions. He had all of these things. And God says to him, if you remember in Genesis 12, he says, leave your country, leave your people, and leave your father's household. What does that sound like to you? Does that sound familiar at all? I think for any of us who come from an immigrant background, this is what the first immigrants to America were called to do. Well, whether they were called by some, whatever it was called by, uh, some of them was legitimately called by God. But I think for the great majority of us, the call was a call and the allure of the American dream. To leave their country, whether it be Sweden or Africa, somewhere in Africa, or uh, Korea or China, wherever it might be, England, they left their country, they left their people. They left the people who looked like them, who thought like them, who talked like them, who smelled like them, who acted like them, who thought in every way it was these are my people to leave them behind and then to leave the father's household behind. In a sense, what God was calling Abraham to do was by faith follow me in the same way that because of a pursuit of the American dream Many of our ancestors and forefathers in the faith came to America. I heard this story of a woman named Kathy Keller. Her husband is a pastor in New York City, Tim Keller. Her great-grandfather tells uh, the story of how he left Croatia in the late 1800s. He left behind his pregnant wife and the child within the womb. And he set forth to America. And for eight years, this woman raised her son... As a single mother, no communication back in those days, there was no email, there was no cacao talk, there was no uh, telephone, there was no cell phone, none of that stuff. So for eight years, there's no communication. Can you believe this? He leaves his country, his people, his father's household, everything behind for the pursuit of a greater dream. Eight years later, she in Croatia gets an envelope with only two things, a set of tickets and the name of a railway station. And so she goes to the nearest port, armed with these two things in hand. They clip the name of the railway station to the clothing of her and her son, just like they do in kindergarten or preschool in schools in America. So something important, you want to make sure it gets home. So they put them on, and they sailed across. They got into Ellis Island, New York. They took boats and trains, and finally made it down to... Western Pennsylvania, where her husband was working in the coal mines. And they got to the place that was marked on her shirt. They got to that railway station. They got off of the train. And sure enough, there was her husband waiting with a wagon, waiting there for her. Why? Because every day for the past three months, he had gone to that particular railway station, hitched his wagon, and waited just in case, today's the day that the train brings my family in. For three months, day after day, after day after day, until finally they arrive. And Why do they do that? Why do they do that? Why do your parents? I ask my parents a story, and they tell me they left everything behind in Korea. They left their education. They, you know, mom and dad say we were educated at the best schools in Korea. Left all that they had, and they came to America to work in these menial jobs. Why? You ask any of those who immigrated that first first generation, they say, we did it for you. We did it for you because of your future so that you could live in America, so that you could have the dream of a lifetime, so that you could study, so that you could get everything that we were not privy to, that you would not be privy to had we stayed in the motherland. We left everything behind for your sake. You've heard that story, haven't you? Some of you heard that. What, do you, what does that do in your heart as you hear that? For me, it moves me to no end to think that they gave up all of that for me. So you ask Abraham, why did you give up everything that you had? Your father's house? your people, your country. Why'd you do that? The only reason why. There was nothing in it for him to gain, but he did it for God. So in as much as we get moved and our hearts are warmed when our parents said, we did it for you, when Abraham says, I did it for you, God, would not his heart be moved at Abraham's willingness to surrender everything in order that he might follow the call of God into the unknown. This is what God is calling Abraham to do. He says, go to a land you would later receive, but he obeyed and went. When it says he obeyed and went, it says when called to go to a place, he obeyed and went. This is the perfect participle. Literally means when he was called, he was already obeying and going. In other words, Abraham didn't linger. He didn't question. He didn't doubt. He didn't dilly-dally. He didn't delay. As soon as the call of God was issued, Abraham got up and he went. Can I ask you a question? There's something that God has been calling you to do by faith. Maybe you've been hearing it over the past few weeks. as We've been talking about this crazy faith or what it means to walk by faith or to give God our best. You've been hearing in your heart this call There's something that God is calling you to do. A person to talk to, a relationship to invest into, a person to invite the church, a place that you need to go, a ministry that you need to begin. Abraham immediately when the call was issued, he was already going When God spoke to him, he was already living in obedience. Listen, some of us, we have two issues when it comes to the will of God. Some of us, we have a hard time discerning the will of God. Others have a hard time obeying the will of God. Can I tell you, here's what Abraham is telling us. If our hearts are already predisposed to go, then we wouldn't have had problems hearing the will of God and the voice of God. Listen, if we're willing to leave everything behind to follow God wherever he calls us to go, then we will never have a problem hearing and discerning the voice of God as he calls us to go. The reason why some of us have such a difficult time is because we say, God, I'm willing to go wherever you want us to go as long as I can do it my way. If we're willing to leave everything behind and follow God, whether that means to leave or to stay or whatever that means, as long as we're willing to leave it all behind because this is what faith does, then God will make it crystal clear where we're supposed to be. This is the first thing. Faith is a willingness to leave everything behind in order to follow God. The second thing we see, second thing we see is that faith endures hardship because our eyes are fixed on heaven. Faith endures hardship because our eyes are fixed on heaven. It says in the middle of verse 9, He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Every, uh, Every summer, our youth ministry, our graduating class, goes away on a retreat that we ask our graduating class to plan. And in that time, we, it's a time of, of praying for each other, fellowship, having some last memories, uh, enjoying. But uh, as a pastoral staff and, and teaching staff of our youth ministry, we try to take seven years of youth ministry and distill it into two days in order that they can take what they've received from here and be able to stand on their faith as they go into college. And so one particular year, the class decided that they wanted to go camping, right? to pitch a tent and to go camping, Uh, I wasn't the the biggest fan of this, but, um, you know, it's something that they're planning. And so we said, okay, let's go ahead and do it. And so they said, we're going to go camping at Fort Wilderness in Disney. I think it's called Fort Wilderness. Is that what it's called? Fort Wilderness is where they pitch the tent for you, where they've got a bathroom right next to where you are, where everything that you need is pretty much there. There's a running joke that our people tell that if you go fishing at that Fort Wilderness camp, there's scuba divers underneath who will put massive fish onto your thing for you. Everything is done for you, basically, so you can just enjoy your time and tell people you went camping and you roughed it. So we were camping that night, and we had these different sessions. Um... And I stink at things like this. This is very difficult for me because I just I like I need a bed. I like sleeping in beds. I like being in comfortable places. That's my that's my vice. That's my evil. That's my idol, is is comfort. And so they're like, yeah, we're gonna rough it in these tents. We had a tent for the sisters and a tent for the brothers. And and I went in there, I I literally went in there for about five minutes. I went in there and the first thing I said was, man, it is way too crowded in here. They're like people lined up, like, you know, like. I don't know, like hot dogs in a hot dog pack, they're like all stuck next to each other and the sweat was like the slime on the hot dogs. I was like, I, there's no room for me in here. Not only was it crowded in there, because of all of the people, it was hot in there. Like it was emanating body heat, and every time someone opened their mouth to talk, more hot air was coming out, and so my glasses were getting all fogged up. I was like, this is crazy, and because of all of these things, and, and the people, they, the guys thought it was so fun, let's not take a shower, it smelled in there too. It was all like nasty up in that place, and so I said, guys, hey, um, I love y'all, but I'm going to go sleep in the car tonight, so you guys stay here. I went and I slept in the car. It was the worst sleep I've ever had in my life. But I imagine it was a little bit better than the people sleeping in these tents. I think to myself, why in the world would they want to do that? Even if you could lie down on the tent, like the ground was like all rocky and you've got like uh, like sharp rocks like piercing into your back and it's like craziness. How can you actually sleep in there? The reason they could do that is because it was only for a night. The reason they could do that is because there's such a thing called home that they could retreat to. I think for me, that's the best thing about camping is that it's only a temporary thing and you can always go back home. That's what, the thing about Abraham, he lived in tents, but he's saying that's the way he lived for all of his life. Why? What does it mean to live in a tent? It means that you don't have A home, at least not for this day, you don't. But for as long as you've got a tent, God is saying, Abraham, this is your home. Wherever you go, that place is your home. Here's what he's saying. The best place on earth, guys, is not what you consider to be home. The best place on earth is where God calls you to be. For Abraham to live in a tent... Here's what it meant, meant, God, when you tell me to go, I'm going to go. When you tell me to stop, I'm going to stop. When you tell me to plant here, I'm going to plant here. When you tell me to get up and go, I'm going to go again. The best thing about living in a tent is that you're reminded that this world is not your home. And Abraham reminds us that the best place to be is not where we think we ought to be or where we're most comfortable, but the best place to be is where God is telling us we ought to be. And for a lot of us, I'd imagine that where you are is where God wants you to be. But I'd imagine that for others of us, God may at some point call us to be in another place. And wherever God calls us to be is a place where we're supposed to be, and it's the best place for us to be. Narnia would say this, he's not always safe, but he's always good. See, for Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, he went from being the ultimate somebody to being a nobody. To having a home, to having possessions, to having riches, to having servants at his beck and call, and he left all of that behind to be a nobody. When he left Ur of the Chaldees, and he went to the place where he was supposed to go, there was no welcome team, there was no greeting team, there were no people saying, "Welcome, Abraham, we've been waiting for you." All he had was what he had with him, and all, that's all he had. And he just planted his tent down there. He went from being a somebody to being a nobody in order to follow God because in following God, my friends, there are no guarantees that life is going to be quote-unquote better than the life that you left behind. You understand this? I think some of us think, you know what, if if I go, if God's calling me to go somewhere, then immediately life is going to be better. Things are going to be better. He brought me here to Florida. Life should be better than it was in the place that I left behind. There's no guarantees that life is going to be better simply because you follow God. Maybe you were told that when you first put your trust in Christ, when you went to that revival, you went to that retreat, and somebody told you, hey, you put your trust in Christ, life is going to be all good. It's not. In fact, you will get to this place in Scripture where it says some people were mistreated for their faith. In the Muslim world, so many people who are turning away from Islam and putting their trust in Christ, life isn't getting easier for them. There are no guarantees that when we follow the call of God that life is going to be easier than the life we left behind. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's going to be harder. And the question of faith is, do we trust that God is worthy of us leaving all of these things behind in order to follow him? The reason why Abraham could follow God even when life was hard was because he was looking ahead to a city with foundations, he says, whose architect and builder is God. When I think of this idea of, hey, yeah, sometimes following God is going to lead to great things. Other times, maybe not so great. I think of one of our the Sunshine State's great heroes, Tim Tebow. You guys know Tim Tebow, right? Men know him because he was a he's a jock. Right? Women know him because he's also a jock. He's a good-looking man, a man of integrity and of character. He loves God. When he was a freshman, a first-year student at the University of Florida, he was part of the team that won the national championship. Right? His sophomore year, I think he became the first sophomore in college history to win the Heisman Trophy, which is given each year to the best college football player. His junior year, they won the national championship again, defeating Oklahoma. And that year, he became famous because on his eye black, he wrote John 316. You remember this? He got drafted first round by the Denver Broncos, didn't play much his first year. Second year, he got in, and and towards the last half of the year, he started playing, and he balled out. He led the Denver Broncos to six Right? Six fourth quarter comebacks. That's like at the end of the game, he leads his team from behind to win the game. Six times that happened. That is unheard of. And it led to this thing where everyone started saying, oh my gosh, God is on Tim Tebow's side. Right? You remember this, right? All these people are praying. And Tim Tebow would famously get on his, his knee and he would pray. And, and, and some of us have gone to foreign lands and have Tebowed in different places on the, on the shores of the Amazon River in Ecuador. Some of our people have pictures there. People were Tebowing all around because it became a symbol of faith and that God is on our side. And in this great playoff game, you remember, I forget who the Broncos were, were playing, went to overtime, famous game, Tebow throws this 80-yard touchdown pass, Demarius Thomas catches it, they win the game, and Tim Tebow's on the sideline singing, our God is an awesome God, right, this amazing, amazing story of, yeah, they did it, and all Christians everywhere rejoicing, this is holy war, our, you know, all this stuff. At the press conference, it came known that it it was exactly three years before that Tim Tebow had defeated Oklahoma for the national championship, had put John 316 under his eye black, and three years later, he did the same thing. And it was only at the press conference that someone said, hey, do you know, the first time you did that was exactly three years ago. You guys won the national championship. He said, I had no idea. That day, I think 92 million people Googled John 316, right, blew up the... That didn't literally blow up, but uh, they said it was the most searched term up until that point in time in Google. But at that press conference, someone came up and said, did you know, and you can look this up, not right now, but look this up later, he threw for 316 yards that game. Ten completions, which means each one was 31.6 yards each. The fourth quarter ratings was 31.6. The time of possession for the other team was 31 minutes and 6 seconds. All of a sudden, everyone's mind is blown up. Oh, my goodness. This is like totally God. God is all up in this thing. Next week comes. They're so excited for how God is going to help Tim Tebow, and he gets destroyed 45 to 10 by the evil empire, the New England Patriots. (laughs) And all of a sudden, nobody's talking anymore, right? No one's saying, oh, God was with Tebow. Why? Because following God doesn't always mean... That life is going to work out the way we want it to work out. In fact, the next year he got traded to the New York Jets, barely got on the field. 18 months later, he was a free agent, meaning no NFL team wanted him. And then he goes to a minor league baseball team, and he's playing, and he's struggling in the lowest levels of baseball. So people ask him, where's God now? What would you say if that was you? Right? If you had just thrown that ADR touchdown pass, you'd surely be saying, yeah, God is with me. But where is he when you're languishing in the minor leagues? For Tim Tebow, he's saying, God is the same. He's never, he's never gone anywhere. He's the same place he's always been. In fact, my mission in life is not to be the best baseball player, even the best football player. My mission in life is to change the lives of people. And this is what he said. He said, me failing identifies a whole lot more with people than me winning the Heisman Trophy. In fact, what I'm doing right now is giving me a better platform to be able to talk about the worthiness of God than all these trophies and all these accolades could. Is that the kind of understanding of faith and of God that you and I have? There's no guarantees in life. When God calls us to go, sometimes that means you, who are a somebody, become a nobody for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't mean that life is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that life is going to be roses. It doesn't mean that the angels are going to open up this amazing path. Sometimes it does. Maybe it will, but maybe it won't. And faith is saying, I will follow God even if, not if then, but even if he doesn't, I'll still follow him. Why? Why? Because our eyes are not set on earth. The reason Abraham could live in tents and endure here is because his eyes were set on a higher prize. That's the second thing. The last thing then we see. last thing we see is that faith trusts God even when his timing doesn't make sense. Okay, Faith trusts God even when his timing doesn't make sense. If you look in verse 11, the way that... I read it in the old NIV, it says, By faith Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren. But I think in every other translation that I read, from the ESV to the King James to the New American Standard to the new version of the NIV, it more likely translates it in this way. By faith even Sarah, who was past age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. I don't know what it says in your Bible, but I think most... Scholars would agree that here the shift goes from the faith of Abraham to the faith of Sarah. What is he saying? I think he's saying a lot of things. I think for young people, one of the things it's saying is if you are gonna get married, you got to marry well. Because what happens when you go from being a somebody to a nobody? What happens if your wife or your husband marries you because of your money and all of a sudden you've got nothing because you follow God? What happens then? What happens when all of your hopes and all of your dreams and all of the things that you think are so amazing fall apart and they disappear out of your hands? What happens then when your plans don't go the way that you want them to go? It's not going to do much good if we've got someone who's rich and handsome or pretty or beautiful and super intelligent but has no faith in God at this point. This point in... When when everything falls apart, and at some point in our lives, things are going to fall apart in our lives, we're going to get sick, or a family member is going to get sick, or we're going to go through job difficulties, or our house is going to catch on fire, or something's going to happen. In those moments of things that the world says you need to have and a spouse, is not going to really be all that helpful? What matters at that time is, do you have someone who's going to walk with you in faith and continue to point you to the hope that you have in Jesus Christ because of the faith that you share together? Because you see, when all these things were happening in Abraham's life, there was his wife, Sarah, who had faith and who trusted God even in the absence of visible reasons to follow God. The the Bible tells us that when the promise of God is given, hey, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. Abraham was 75 years old and Sarah was 65 years old, yet Abraham said, hey, uh, wife, Sarah, God told me that I'm going to have, and out of us is going to become a multitude of people, as numerous as the stars and the sand on the beach. It's going to be that numerous. And it gets to the point where they're 99 years old, 99 years old. He is 99 and she's 89. 24 years have passed and nothing has happened. And yet, here's what faith does. It trusts God even when the timing doesn't make any sense. Don't we have an idea of the way timing ought to work in our lives? I had this idea when I was in college, this is the way college is going to work. I'm going to graduate at 21 or 22. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to be married by 25. I'm going to have kids by 27. That's the way I thought my life was going to be. But it didn't work out like that. Did any of our lives work out the way that we planned them to work out? I think for some of us it may have, but for the great majority of us I would say no. The way that our lives have gone hasn't worked out the way that we thought it was going to work out. But we look back on it, children who came to us too late, children who came to us too early in our plans, and yet this is the way God ordained our lives to be, getting married later than we thought, getting married sooner than I thought, getting into the college of my dreams before my time, or or later than I thought. I had to go to community college and then transfer. All of these things, here's what it means to have faith, because faith isn't just trusting in the timing that we have for the way God ought to work. Faith is trusting God's plan and trusting in his timing as well because the timing of God is a whole lot different a lot of times than the timing that we have for God. Our timing is usually the way that we want things is now. That's usually our timing. But God's time is not like that. And faith is willing to trust God even when we don't understand, we don't agree with, his timing doesn't make any sense to us. You're willing to trust God even though it doesn't seem to make sense the way that you've planned out your life to be. And that's what Sarah was like. That's what Abraham was like. They had in their mind a dream of when they would have kids, but the problem was, in fact, in Genesis, if you read Genesis 11 through Genesis 18, seven times it tells us the issue with Sarah. She was barren. She didn't have children. She was old. her, Her womb was closed. All of these different ways, basically to say the situation is impossible. There is no chance... That Abraham and Sarah are going to have a child. And yet it says here, by faith, Sarah, who was past age, was enabled to bear children. Here's what literally it means. It doesn't literally mean was enabled to bear children. It says, literally, she received the seed. What does that mean? It means at 99 years old, when Abraham said, I still believe in the promise, very easily, Sarah could have said, you know what? Abraham, you're you're 100 years old. You're old. You're wrinkly. You can't touch me. I'm not going to let you do that to me. She could have said, you know what, Abraham, that promise was 25 years ago and nothing has happened. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do that. She could have said, hey, I'm 90 years old. I'm not going to change another diaper. I don't want to do that. But it says, by faith, she received the seed. What does that mean? By faith, somehow use your imagination. A 99-year-old man and an 89-year-old woman in faith had to go to the bed together and say, let's make this happen in order that the promise of God could be revealed. Do you know how much faith that would take a woman of 89 years old? But she trusted God even when the timing did not make any sense to her. And because of that, the seed of the promise came out of whose line would come the Savior of the world. Because of this faithful labor, faithful walking, faithful journey, even when it made no sense, leave everything behind and follow. And oh, one day you're going to have a kid even though you're as old as dirt. And yet faithfully they continued to walk the father and the mother of the faith in whose line we now stand 4,000 years after the lifetime of Abraham and Sarah. Now some of you might be thinking, hold up, Uh, they're being praised for their amazing faith, but wasn't Abraham a little bit shady in his dealings? Didn't Abraham, when he went to Egypt, like, there was this conversation he had with Sarah. He said, hey, you know what, Sarah? I'm scared of the king. I'm scared of Pharaoh. He's going to, if he knows because you're beautiful, if he knows that I'm your husband, he's going to kill me. So, hey, let's, let's pretend that you're my sister. So you tell everyone that you're my sister so that he can go ahead and, and, and sleep with you. That's Abraham. What a jerk. Who would do that to his own wife? Abraham would not just once though he did it twice he goes to the king of Abimelech king Abimelech and he says hey you know what um hey Sarah remember that plan it worked out pretty well in Egypt you want to do it again because they're going to kill me if you don't join the harem and they know that I'm your uh, if you if you don't go with them and they know that I'm your husband so she says okay I'll do it again I'm your sister and he goes and by the grace of God the king says you know what You, you should have told me and so he didn't touch Sarah because he knew that she was a married woman. Abraham, the father of our faith, are you kidding me? This guy's crazy. It's ridiculous. And Sarah, she's not exactly the pinnacle of faith, too. When God says, Hey, I'm gonna uh, through you, okay, through you, the legit way, you're gonna have babies. She said, Oh, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Hey, Abraham, hey honey, why don't you go ahead and and go ahead and sleep with my maidservant? Go sleep with them so that you can have children through them. Abraham, duh, he's like, okay, I'm going to do it. What a a goofball. He does it because she's not a person of faith, is she? In fact, when God comes to him at the age of 99, God is talking to Abraham. He says, Abraham, okay, this time next year you're going to have a baby. (laughs) It says Sarah laughs. She laughs about it. She's like, ha-ha, that's funny. That's funny. And then when God talks to Sarah, he says, Sarah, why did you laugh? It's this really hilarious account. Sarah says, I didn't laugh. And God says, yes, you did laugh. And then the scene ends and it goes to the next thing. It's really funny. That's the, they're in the hall of faith? Are you kidding me? Why? I think what the hall of faith is telling us with all of these heroes, you don't have to have perfect faith to have life-changing faith. The one thing that mattered, I think, in Sarah's life was when it counted, she exercised faith. You don't need to have great faith, perfect faith, amazing faith. What is he saying? Even in the midst of our broken and busted faith, he's saying there's an overwhelming dispensation of God's grace to cover up all of your messed up faith that you bring before the Lord God. That's why Jesus can say, hey, you know what? What did he say? You've got a mountain in front of you. You want that thing to move, you've got to have faith. How much faith? Small as a mustard seed. That's all you need. So you don't need perfect faith. All you need is faith when that moment comes. You just need to take that step. A little faith. That's all you need to see mountains lifted and moved. All you need to do is in that place. It's not a perfect faith. It's a grace-drenched, grace-baptized faith that says, even though your faith is not perfect and it it's flawed and it's failed and is broken, when your faith is in the perfect one, Jesus You take that step of faith. God says, I will do amazing things through you. I will lead you. I'll empower you. Abraham, all of that wandering around in tents, all of that leaving that stuff behind, you never saw it with your eyes of sight, but you see it with eyes of faith, that because of your singular actions of faith, one foot in front of the other, going before God, as a result, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, would be born. That's what he's saying to you and me too. This morning, we don't have to have perfect faith. We don't have to have the most immaculate of faith. Just a little faith is enough. As long as it's placed in the right place. And when that moment comes, we take that step. And God says, when you do, trust me. I'm going to do things beyond what you know. You may see it in this life. Lord willing, that will be awesome. But even if you don't, right, trust that God sees it. And even if it's 2,000 years later, God uses our faith, and he builds an amazing kingdom through it. Let's pray together. Let's just take a half a minute right now to pray to the Lord God. What is it that God is calling you to do? What is God calling you to do right now? How is he calling you to exercise your faith in him? What does that faith look like? What does that step look like? Let's move towards God right now. Simple faith. Simple step. Let's just pray to God for half a minute and then I'll pray for us. And we'll continue to worship through our offerings and our songs. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this uh, service that you've given to us. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for all that you're doing in us. We pray that you would continue to move within us a faith that moves mountains. doesn't require a lot, Father. Just, it doesn't require perfect faith, simple, broken faith, and yet you use that to do great things for the sake of your kingdom. Pray that you would continue to move within us, take us deeper into you. May we be willing to leave everything behind. May we trust that there are no guarantees, but you go before us. May we give all that we are, trusting you, even when the timing doesn't seem to make any sense to us, that we would walk with you. So, Lord God, plant the seeds of faith deep within our heart today, that we would arise we would awaken to know that faith is not simply for us. We don't walk with in faith simply that our lives might look a certain way. But we do it for the sake of God and for the sake of your kingdom, so that through our choices that others might come to find life in you. So lead us. Give us that spirit of faith and spirit of willingness, spirit of obedience, that we might be able to hear your voice better. In Jesus' name we pray.